um, before we get to God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father, what a gift your word is to us. We don't want to take that for granted this morning that people have given their lives so that we could all sit here and have a copy of your word. A man named William Tyndale sat in a jail cell because he translated your word into English. And now hundreds of years later, we are the recipients of that. And we are so thankful for that, Lord. We're thankful for your word. It gives us life. It gives us direction. We know you through the Bible. And so we don't want to take for granted the opportunity that we have this morning to study your word for a few minutes. I pray that you would help me to be clear. And I pray that what I say would be faithful to what you intend to communicate to us through this passage of Scripture. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the most important lessons that I have learned and that I'm still in the process of learning as a parent is that it is necessary to teach our kids that they are accountable to authority. Now, right now, they are primarily under Bethany and I's authority. We are responsible to guide them, to teach them, to lead them, but they will not always be accountable to our authority. There will come a time when they'll leave our house. They won't be directly accountable to us anymore in the sense of they're responsible to obey us, but... They will always be accountable to many different authorities. And we try to tell them this from time to time. And at the very minimum, they will always be accountable to God and to his authority. He rules and reigns, and as human beings, we are accountable to that. And we want our kids, from the the time they're very little, as they're growing up, to understand that and to learn to live in light of that and to learn to respond appropriately to authority. Well, when you come to the Gospel of Mark, all the way back in the beginning of the Gospel, and you don't need to turn there, but Jesus is essentially proclaiming a message of authority, isn't he? He's preaching about the kingdom, the arrival on the scene of God's rule and reign. And he calls us to an appropriate response to that rule and reign. And the response is to repent, to turn from my self-centered rebellion and to trust, repent, and believe, trust in the all-sufficiency of his work, of his death, of his resurrection for life, for my life, for my forgiveness of sins. A lot of times when we think of authority, we think of authority as something negative, as something harsh. And when Jesus proclaims the inbreaking of the rule and reign of God, that's, that's not harsh if you respond appropriately. It's good, and it's gentle, and it's kind. And God exercises his authority through his rule and reign in order to do us good as his children. And so that tone is set early on in the Gospel of Mark, and that's the message that Jesus proclaims, that he has authority, that God's kingdom has arrived through him. And then as you get into chapters 11 and 12, we really begin to see the conflict between 
the authority, the claims of authority that Jesus has, and the religious leaders who are in Jerusalem who think they have the final authority. I mean, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters into the city on a donkey, and he proclaims through his actions that he is the rightful king of the city of Jerusalem. And as soon as he gets into the city, the next day he goes back in and he attacks the temple complex and he drives out the money changers and he makes a scene there and he does that in order to say this temple under this leadership is not living up to the expectations that I have set for it. And he gives those expectations in chapter 11, verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written my house? She'll be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus has the authority to say, this is the purpose of the temple, and you're not living up to it. And so in response to that, the Sanhedrin, the reigning authority religiously in Jerusalem at that time, they send a delegation of people to him, and look what they ask him. Verse 27, of chapter 11. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave this authority, who gave you this authority to do them? But they put the issue front and center. And Jesus's response to them is to ask them about John the Baptist and his ministry. Was his ministry based in a heavenly authority Or was it simply just something he did on his own authority and his own merit? And their answer, the the religious leader's answer to that question, will determine what they believe about Jesus and what sort of authority he has. And of course, they don't want to give an answer to that question because I think they know what it probably should be. And then Jesus responds to that by telling this parable in chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And in this parable, if you remember, it's about a vineyard, a vineyard owner, and some wicked tenants. And essentially what happens in this parable is there's a rightful owner of the vineyard, and there are those who have tried to co-op the vineyard and have tried to steal it and take it away, and they have tried to deny the authority of the rightful owner. And Jesus says that What do you think is going to happen when the owner comes? What is he going to do? How is he going to exercise his authority over you when that happens? And they are so willing to rebel against him that in the parable, against the landowner, that in the parable they go to the lengths of killing his only son to try to make a claim to his authority. Of course, when Jesus tells this parable, they're none too happy. Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They perceive it, but it doesn't cause them to repent. It doesn't cause them to change and place themselves under his authority. Instead, just like parables are intended to do, it hardens their hearts against him. At the end of verse 12, it says, So they left him and went away. So maybe if you're reading through this for the first time, you think, oh, Jesus successfully answered their question about authority, put them on the horns of a dilemma. Then he told this powerful parable and sort of drove them off, running with their tail tucked between their legs, and they're done trying to confront him. Well, as you'll see over this week and the next couple of weeks, that's not the case at all. 
They come back to him, and this time their desire is to show that he doesn't have authority, and they do this by trying to put him in conflict with the highest authority of that time, the Roman emperor, political authority. And so they ask him about this, and their desire, is, as you'll see, is to trap him. But you cannot trap the creator and the king. And as they're continually asking these questions to him, I love how Jesus responds over and over again with wisdom and care and with the exact right answer and the exact right teaching that they needed to hear and that we need to hear as well. And so he turns their trap back on them in this passage, and in that process of of turning it back on them, he's going to give you and I some very clear instruction about our accountability to his authority. And he's going to give us clear instruction about how we should properly order our lives under God's rule and reign. And so today I want to share with you from just a few verses here, chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, three mindsets necessary to properly order our lives under God's authority. Three mindsets, perspectives, dispositions, three mindsets necessary to properly order our lives under God's authority. All right, so the first one of these is found in verses 13 up to the first part of verse 15 here, and it's to avoid dishonest hypocrisy. So Jesus has told the parable the, the religious leaders go away in anger, but they send another delegation back to him to question him again, and this time they have a specific purpose to it. Look at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. When we moved into our house here uh, in March of 2017, our house in Michigan, In the shed, in the back of our house, uh, we found something we did not expect to find in a very urban neighborhood. We found an animal trap sitting in the shed for some reason. The previous owner didn't tell us why that animal trap was there. It was a little concerning, but we found an animal trap back there in our shed. And a guy in my neighborhood, I got to know him a little bit, a couple doors down, and he has a pretty nice garden in his backyard, and he was having some issues with rabbits eating his, his vegetables in his garden. And so we were talking, and I said, well, I have a, I have a trap uh, that's in, in my shed, and you're welcome to borrow that. And so he did, and, and he set the trap, and unfortunately for him, he didn't catch rabbits. He caught two skunks, but <laughs> thankfully, he didn't ask me to help him dispose of them. But, but you know how an animal trap works, right? I mean, it, it's pretty basic. We, we're the smarter species, and so we put bait in the trap, and we set the trap, and we try to lure the animal in, and when the animal steps on the trigger, when it's reaching out to get the bait, the snap springs, and the animal is caught. That's the exact word that is used here of what these religious leaders are trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to lure him in, they're trying to set a trap, and they want to catch him with this question that they ask. The bait that they use here is flattery. Look at what they say in verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. 
They are buttering him up, getting ready to throw this question out there and set the trap for him. And here's the question that they ask. Look at the rest of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So here's the dilemma that Jesus is in. We have in our country all sorts of different taxes, don't we? I could start listing them. Social security tax, we have real estate taxes, we have sales taxes, and the list goes on. Well, imagine that the government instituted a new tax, and it was going to be $250 a year. It's not that bad. But they said this tax is going to go directly to fund abortion. How would you feel about that? Would you be uncomfortable as a Bible-believing Christian in paying that tax? That is sort of the dilemma that they put Jesus here, and that sense of, ah, that's what they're trying to do here to Jesus. And it doesn't say the word, maybe in your translation, poll tax. Maybe some of you have that written in here. In mine, it just says taxes. But this is specifically talking about a tax called the poll tax. And this was something that was required of the Roman Empire in order to fund a census that had been done many years earlier. And they were collecting this tax on a, on a yearly basis. And this tax, this poll tax specifically, reminded the Jewish people that they were not masters in their own land. They didn't rule over themselves. They were under the thumb of a foreign invader. And so when when the religious leaders ask this carefully crafted question to Jesus, both of his answers, it seems, are pretty unsavory. I mean, He can respond and say that the Jewish people should pay this tax, and then the crowds are going to dismiss him because they don't like paying this tax. And in fact, they want to hear their religious leaders say, no, you don't have to pay this. But on the other hand, if he says, no, you shouldn't pay this tax, you don't have to pay it, well, now he's run up against the Roman authorities. And this is going to put him in a lot of trouble with the the political leadership in the land. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is an interesting combination of people there, chances are both of them, they would have probably answered this differently. The Herodians would have said, yes, you have to pay it. The Pharisees may have leaned toward, no, you don't have to pay it. And so they come together to ask him this question and put him on a dilemma. And they think they've lured Jesus in and they, that he will have no choice but to spring this trap and they will have caught him and they will have proved that he really isn't a teacher from God, and he really doesn't have authority. But of course, Jesus sees through their flattery. It's interesting that they say, you don't care about anyone's opinion, and then they try to flatter the guy. They say, doesn't care about anyone's opinion. doesn't seem like that would work very well, but they ask him this question, and Jesus sees through it, and he identifies the real motive behind their question. Look at the beginning of verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, it gets right to the heart. This is what's going on in their question. What is hypocrisy? At root, this word hypocrisy means to be a stage actor. It means to be a pretender or a role player. Marcel and I were at a a workshop, a preaching workshop these past few days, and I actually met a pastor there who in his downtime 
participates in local community plays. He's an actor in his downtime. It's something he enjoys doing. It gets him out in the community. He connects with people. And I told him, I've never met a pastor who does that before. <laughs> that's really interesting. So we had a good conversation about that. But that's the idea here. You're, you're putting on a face. You're pretending to be someone who you are not. You're playing a role. They're pretending to ask a genuine question here, and they're, they're flattering Jesus, acting like they really want to hear what he has to say, and they're setting him up. But inside their hearts, it's rebellion. They're not interested. They don't want to submit to his authority. They want to trap him, and they want to deny his authority and his rule and reign. Hypocrisy is one of the most frequent ways for you and I to deny God's authority in our own lives. We pretend to be submissive to Him. We put on a role when we come to church, when we're around other believers. We act as if we believe God's Word and we want to obey God's Word, but then in our hearts, they're full of rebellion and corruption and wickedness, and we functionally deny Jesus' authority. And that's what they're doing here. So how does Jesus handle this? Beautifully, (laughs) in a word. And that gets us to our second mindset here as he begins to answer. So avoid dishonest hypocrisy to live under God's authority. Don't, Don't be like the Pharisees and the Herodians. But then secondly, what Jesus does here is answer them by saying, you have to own your secondary obligations. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You have to own, to properly align yourself under God's authority, you have to own your secondary obligations. So when you, when you drive a car, um, I don't know a lot about cars and how they work, but I know that the engine is the main thing. It is of primary importance right? Everything else flows off of the engine. If the engine is working properly, then potentially everything else can work properly. But if the engine is not running properly, nothing else is going to work. But you can't neglect the other parts of the car. Maybe your engine's running properly, but if your transmission is not working properly, or if your tires are flat, you're not going to get very far in your vehicle. Those things may be secondary, but they are important as well. They matter. And that's what I'm saying here, and I think that's what Jesus says here, to rightly order your your life under God's authority. There are secondary obligations. They're not the engine, but they are things you have to pay attention to, and they are things that you have to give obligations to. Our ultimate allegiance, as we'll see, is to God. But in His divine wisdom, He has given us other obligations. In fact, many different earthly responsibilities that we have to align ourselves with and practice. And we have to live the right way according to those obligations for Jesus to truly be our authority and King. And so really, the Pharisees and the Herodians have set up a false dilemma here. They're acting like you can either be a good Jew and serve God, or you can fulfill your responsibility to government. It's one or the other, and it's not one or the other. And that's the wisdom and the beauty of how Jesus answers here, as he sets everything in order. So look how he responds, verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. 
Now, you know this, but a denarius is a coin that would have been equal to about one day's wage for the average worker during this time. Verse 16, and they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. So he asked specifically about the likeness on the coin and the inscription, the words written on the coin. So there's, like our coins, there's a face on the coin, and there's an inscription on the coin. So who was the likeness? Well, the likeness, they say Caesar here, and that's just like, a, like saying the president, but specifically here it's a man named Tiberius Caesar, and he was the emperor at this time. And then the inscription that was written on it said, son of the divine Augustus. So you have this coin with an image on it, and the Jewish people, according to the second of the Ten Commandments, were not allowed to make images. And so this would have been offensive to a Jew, just the fact that it had this image on it. And then, even beyond the image, it said, son of the divine Augustus. It's proclaiming that the Roman emperor is himself God which for a monotheistic Jew would have been incredibly offensive, would have been maddening. And so maybe you can start to understand this tax with this coin and what the Roman emperor was proclaiming all the while having authority over the Jewish people, this is why you read about zealots in the New Testament, people who were willing to go to violent ends in order to throw off Roman rule. This is what they were upset about. It's all, in some ways, based on this tax and on the, the authority of the Romans. And so this is, a, this is a pretty poignant question for Jesus to have to deal with here. But Jesus doesn't encourage the violence, and he doesn't encourage us to respond the way the zealots have done. In fact, look what he says in verse 17. Jesus said to them, the first part here, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The religious leaders had tried to put Jesus on the sharp point of offense so that he had to fall off one way or the other. But he doesn't see our responsibilities to government, to political authority, and our responsibilities to God as mutually exclusive. You don't have to fall off the fence one way or the other. In fact, these responsibilities, according to Jesus, go hand in hand. All right, are you ready for this? Here we go. The biblical perspective on human government is that it is not inherently evil. And I'm going to go beyond that in a minute, but let's start small and we'll work our way up here, okay? It's not inherently evil. When God created Adam and Eve, he told them to multiply, to fill the earth and take dominion over the earth. And implicit within that was the understanding that as more and more people were living on the earth, even without sin, there would have to be some sort of organizing factor for common life together. If a whole bunch of people are going to live together, you have to organize them and make laws and determine who can drive on the right side of the road, who can drive on the left side of the road. I guess in that case, who's going to take their horse on this side of the road? or their donkey, and who's going to take their donkey on this side of the road, right? There has to be some organizing leadership, and that's what politics are. That's what human government is. And so it would have been necessary, even had Adam and Eve never sinned, but of course, 
They did sin, and it's even more necessary now because we live in a broken world. We're no longer dealing with people who are innocent and free from sin. And so not only is government not inherently evil, I would go a step further, and I think the Bible would go a step further, and I'll show you in just a second, and I would say government is a gift from God given to us to promote what is good and to restrain evil. Let me show you that from Romans 13. Small, but I'll read it to you. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. What would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's verses 1 to 4. Now the rest of it. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So Jesus says here, the followers, those who follow him, need to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, what belongs to him. And so I would say it this way. We have certain responsibilities to our government, and we should attempt as best we can to help our government and a democracy. We have this this privilege to help our government fulfill its God-ordained role and to submit to it in the process. We want our government to promote what is good and to restrain evil because that's what government has been instituted for. So here, he's specifically talking about collecting taxes, isn't he? Pay a tax to Caesar. When a government collects taxes, it's not theft. (laughs) It's not wrong for a government to do that. What's the percentage they should take? Should it be 30%, 40%, 50% of my paycheck? Should that go to the government? I don't know. Biblically speaking, it's not theft. The the Bible doesn't specify what the tax rate should be. And of course, we can discuss that as human beings and as followers of Christ. We can talk about that. What should it be? What promotes the good in society the best? Is it a lower tax rate? Is it a higher tax rate where wealth is shared? We can talk about those things. We can apply biblical principles to those things. But the teaching of Jesus is quite clear here, whatever the tax rate is. (laughs) To properly place yourself under God's authority, you and I have to come under human authority, political authority. Now, as Jesus says that, render to Caesar, keep in mind who's in charge here. It's the guy who claimed to be divine. And he still tells his followers to render to him what is his. But there are definitely times 
where political leaders will overreach and they will try to bypass God's authority in our lives. And that understanding brings us to our last mindset here. So we own our secondary obligations like responsibilities to government. We think biblically about those things. They do have a place in our lives, but always we want to keep the primary authority in the place of primary authority. So the last thing I would say here is restore primary authority in our lives. Look at the rest of verse 17, or all of verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. You do have responsibilities to political authority and to God the things that are God's. The authority of government, you could even see this in Romans 13. I mean, I think Paul is just probably riffing off of what Jesus says here when he writes Romans 13. He's explaining it, applying it. The authority of government ultimately comes under God's rule and reign. Ultimate authority goes to God, not to government. Now, when you typically hear this, you know, we think in terms of, okay, if the government asks me to do something that would cause me to sin or would cause me to deny God's word, then I can, I can disobey. And that's accurate. I mean, you see the apostles work that out in Acts. We have to obey God rather than men. And so we know that. That's true. In our country today, we're not often asked to, to do that. We're not often asked to disobey God in order to obey government. It doesn't happen very often. But I think there's a more subtle danger in which we can end up putting Caesar above our responsibility to God. And it's not by obeying government when we should be obeying God, and those are mutually exclusive. That, that may happen in the future. That, that certainly happens for some people in our world, in other countries who are persecuted. They have that choice. I can go to prison and obey God, or I can obey my government and deny the gospel. Well, the answer to that is very clear. But in our country, I think it's a more subtle and, and maybe even in some ways more dangerous way that Caesar tries to usurp God's authority. And I think in, in our country, it's Caesar government politics goes after our hearts and our minds and our affections. So in Jesus' day, the Roman emperor very well may have demanded that you only worship him as divine. In our day, what's happening is politics is taking up more and more of our time and our energy and our mental capital and our affections. Politics is saying, I'm so important. You need to spend all of this time thinking about me and what's going to happen and how we're going to address these things. We see in our country increasingly politics political positions are becoming the most important things about people. We're reducing everyone to the elephant or the donkey. <laughs> everyone has that now. Who are you? Are you a Republican or a Democrat? And that's the most important thing about you. And we think the pathway to solve all of our problems is found in political answers. It's the most important thing we can give our time to. And that works whether you are on this side or this side whether you believe in small government or big government. I mean, you can, you can think the answer, our hope is just in reducing the size of government. 
And if we could just do that, and so then it gets all your mental energy and all your time and all your affection in figuring out how to do that, or you may be on the other side and think it's well-run government programs. And if we can just get these things efficient and smooth and sort of expand the size of the government, the safety net, that'll give us hope and we can, we can fix this. Either way, Caesar demands our time and attention and says, you need to put your hope in me rather than God. There's a, a senator um, that I've mentioned before, and I appreciate him very much, and some of the things he said, Ben Sass from Nebraska, he's a believer, and he gave a talk a couple of years ago to a group of pastors and other Christians, and he said this, and I thought this was so helpful. He said, I believe we are having a crisis in politics because people are deciding to project grand meaning onto politics, and politics can't bear that weight. If, you, if you've ever been driving along and you, you see a, there's a bridge coming up and on the side of the road, you see a sign that says, this bridge will hold this amount of weight, right? Based on how many axles you have on your car. It may hold 18 tons, okay? And you have to be aware of that and you can't drive a vehicle over that bridge that's going to, be, to exceed that weight limit. It's not that the bridge is, is somehow bad, or not worth anything because it can't bear the weight of a huge 18-wheeler with all of these steel beams on it. It's just not designed to carry that weight. And that's what politics is for us. And we need to readjust our expectations and our understanding of what our government can do and what our government should do and how we respond to that in our own lives. We can't allow the political to become everything, it's important, and I, I think you see that. It has meaning, it has significance, so be invested in it. Try to do good to people through the political system. We have that opportunity, but you can't allow it to become everything precisely because of what Jesus says here in verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Only God can bear that weight of hope and affections and expectation in our lives. He's the only one that can do that. Now keep in mind here that what, what Jesus says, he asks them, whose image, whose likeness is on that coin? And that's the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1 to talk about God's image being put on every single human being. We are made in God's image. And so Jesus says the coin goes back to Caesar because his image is on it, and human beings are responsible ultimately to God because his image is on each one of us. We are made, we are designed to live with God as our ultimate authority. That's how we're made. I told you earlier, I think I told you this, that the word, maybe I didn't, the word render here, he says render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, that word render means to give back what is owed. I mean, that puts a new spin on paying taxes, doesn't it? <laughs> maybe an uncomfortable spin, but render to Caesar, give back to Caesar what is owed to him and to God, render to God what is owed to him. 
We owe Caesar taxes. They're owed back to him as an authority that God has placed in our lives. But our whole lives are to be rendered back to God because his image is on us. And ultimately, we belong to him. If you're like me, you probably don't think about patents very much. Patents, you know, you, you design something, you create something, you apply for a patent, and you get this patent that shows you are the creator of this thing. I don't think about them very much because I've never even considered applying for a patent and wouldn't have anything worth creating anyway. But there was a guy that was a close friend of ours in Virginia that uh, had a couple of patents. And we had no idea that he had these things, and we actually found them. We were helping them move, and Bethany was carrying a box along, and, oh, (laughs) Rich has a couple of patents. That's amazing. And he'd created these uh, processes in manufacturing engineering, and he'd he'd gotten a couple of patents for them, which was pretty cool. Um, If I had patents, I wouldn't keep it quiet. (laughs) He was just a humble sort of guy. I would let everyone know, (laughs) you know? You guys would know that. But when you have a patent, you have the exclusive rights to make that item, to sell that item, to use that item, to import that item here in the United States. Like You have the rights to that for a certain period of time, according to to our government, and rightfully so. (laughs) You created it. And so you have the right to use it and for other people to pay you to use it as you see fit because you are the creator. God created human beings, full stop. That's not all we need to know, but that is one of the most significant things that you and I need to know about how we should live. God created us. If you deny that reality, you cannot expect to live with joy and flourishing and live in the right way. That's how it works. When you reject that reality that we are created by God and therefore are responsible to his authority, when you reject that, it's like you have a fern that needs water and you treat it like it's a cactus that doesn't need water. You don't understand what you have, and so you don't do what is good for it and treat it properly. And when we don't realize that we are created by a loving and a good God, then we wrongly assess who we are, and we fail to do what is good for us, and we fail to live as we should. That's why Jesus says, render, give back to God. This is the stopping point. This is the ultimate authority that we have. Render to God the things that are God's. We are God's. We are created by him in love and in wisdom, and we are designed to live dependent on him. And we are designed to find fulfillment in him and to live according to his word. But as human beings, what have we done? We have rejected that authority. Our first parents did that. We are very, very good at setting ourselves up as our own authority acting as if we are the creators of ourselves. We are ferns in need of water, but we think we're cactus without the need for water. And so we go, we live by what we want to do and how we think we should live. 
And so that mindset puts us under God's judgment, doesn't it? This is not how you were designed to live. You are mine. You are responsible to me as the creator. And we have rejected that and lived in opposition to him. He has the right to rule over us as the creator and we rebel. And because of that, he has the divine right to bring swift justice to his creation. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God has every right to bring about swift justice because of this, because of what we have done. But the amazing thing is that God created us and he loves us and he wants us to live in humble submission to him. And so he set in motion a plan to bring us back into humble submission to him, to rightly order our lives. And Jesus came to earth for that very purpose. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to buy us back from self-centered rebellion and from sin so that we could render to God our lives and we could give him everything we have. And so the only way really to do what he says here, to render to God the things that are God's, is to humbly repent of our rebellion against him and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as my ransom for sin. And then, out of gratefulness and trust in him, I render back to God my whole life, every part of it. Because it it belongs to him in the first place. He's got his patent all over us. And that is the mindset, what Jesus describes here. That's the mindset that matches who Jesus is in his kingly authority. And it matches his kingdom and his rule and his reign. And that's what the religious leaders were trying to thwart. Notice how they respond at the end of verse 17. And they marveled at him. He properly threaded the needle, didn't he? But he he didn't properly thread the needle just because he's a shrewd teacher. He properly threaded the needle because he has the authority to explain to us how life works and how we really should live and the responsibilities that we really do have to him. That's why he got this right, and that's why they marveled at him. He put everything in perspective our responsibilities to human government and to any number of secondary areas and our ultimate responsibility to him because we're made in his image. And even with all that authority, he still humbly goes to the cross and gives himself up as a sacrifice for our sin 
And what's amazing is that sacrifice becomes the very path of his final rule and reign. It's how he receives glory and honor and authority from the Father as he's exalted as the rightful king. Let's pray. Father, you are the creator. You are the sustainer of life. Everything that we are and do is dependent on you. We do have secondary obligations and responsibilities in this life, and we should fulfill those obligations with passion and with energy and in a way that honors you and seeks to do good to others and to serve others. But all of those secondary obligations come under the rule and reign of our benevolent King, Jesus Christ. And they come under his reign because we are his. He has created us. We have his image on us. And now, as believers, we are being remade every single day and matured, and we are growing to look more and more like our Savior and being built and and formed and fashioned into his image. And I pray that that work would continue as we understand his authority and as we understand the work that he has done on our behalf on the cross. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your authority that is a good and a benevolent authority. Help us to ponder these things and meditate on these things and respond appropriately even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.